0: Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it,
1: we say, welcome.
2: Well, on a lonely little island in a little grass shack, I saw a dead man with gashes in his back, found a leopard claw in the sand, You it was the work of a leopard man, well, leopard man, leopard man... Me, not, I'm a coward, you see.
1: Richard, that is a great rockabilly song to get our blood pumping this morning. It's called Leperman by Joe Wallace and Al Woody's Owls. It was recorded in 1959 by Moon Records in Memphis, Tennessee. I don't know its availability on any albums or collections, but like I said, a great song. My toe is tapping and I am ready to start talking about leopards and cats. What's our theme today?
3: We're going to be talking about rockabilly films from the 1950s. <laughs> uh, no, um, we are talking about the films of not an actor, not a, a writer, partially, but not a, a director. We're going to be talking about a producer, Val Luton. It's one of those rare cases where the producer kind of takes front and center. Even though we've got a couple of well-known directors in the midst of of these films, I I think this is kind of interesting. Val Lewton in in the horror films, I think is probably, would you say he's like one of the top producers in, in horror films? Certainly from this era, I would think. Yeah, I would say because of just the
1: consistent work, I don't know of a person that produced a group of movies like this, and that's what they're known for.
3: So we're going to be taking a look at his career like we have done in the past. Where we've taken a look at actors. We're going to be taking a look uh, a little bit at his life. We're going to be taking a look at the films that he did. And we're going to be focusing on two of the films. Leopard Man, shockingly, will be one of them. <laughs> and the other will be, no, it's not a Boris Karloff film. That would have been too easy for us to do. We went with Curse of the Cat People, which is probably... Out of all the films that he did, these are probably the two lesser entries in the series, although all of these films are great, and Curse of the Cat People does get a little bit of recognition because it's the pseudo-sequel to The Cat People, which is probably, aside from the Karloff films, the most famous film in the series and and is truly a horror classic. Yeah, it'll be interesting. A little something different, and uh, I think it's a lot of fun, though. Val Luton films get talked about quite a bit. We've never talked about them other than I think maybe a casual reference when we did Boris Karloff many years ago. And I've covered the Boris Karloff films on my blog. I've watched all of these. Did you rewatch all of them or just the ones for the... I did not rewatch them all. I have seen all of them. I actually rewatched all of them. Some of them have been multiple viewings over the years. Others like One of the films, The Seventh Victim, I've only seen once. This is my second time seeing it. I have discovered some
1: fresh thoughts about both of these that sort of surprised me. So I'm looking forward to talking about them in detail.
3: I'm very curious on your thoughts on The Leopard Man because I read some things, some some quotes from a famous director that got me thinking that maybe there is a little more to this film than I've been giving it credit for.
1: Absolutely. We'll talk about that when we get there. I may have listened to the commentary by said director. We'll see when we get there. Ooh, all right. I am Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club.
3: And I'm Richard Chamberlain from MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com.
1: Richard, why don't you call the meeting to order today? You want to bang the gavel?
3: I will bang the gavel on the count of three, one, two, and three. Oh,
1: marvelous. You know, that sounds just like me when I do it. So good job. It's almost as if it's the same sound effect, but yeah. <laughs> as old business begins, we want to welcome a couple new members to our Facebook group page, the Classic Horrors Club podcast. Welcome to Tom Krotowicz. And Ben Reynolds, we are happy to have you in the group and joining the conversation on Facebook.
3: As they say in the classic film, freaks, you are now one of
1: us. (laughs) Also, I talked to my mom and brother last night and I said, "Okay, we gave you the shout out. Do we still have to do it? And they said, oh, yes, we have to do that each episode. So real quick. Hi, mom. Hey, Jay. Thank you for listening. We really do appreciate
3: it. Hi, Jeff's mom. Hi, Jeff's brother. It's on my notes right here to say hello. I will say hello to my wife, Carla, who may or may not be listening.
1: No, you can only do it to people that listen. Otherwise, it goes out into the ether and it's like wasted. We have an embarrassment of riches in voicemail this week. So we want to get to those. These are all messages that people, well, I take that back. Two of them emailed us a file, which we're going to play. And one of them actually called in to our number, which is 616 six four nine two five eight two or six one six six four nine
3: you know i was going to try to do club like in a holiday thing i was like sitting here real quick i can add a jingle bell sound effect if you want yes
1: club
3: jingle jingle okay there we go
1: <laughs> and i also want to take this opportunity to remind people to check out our video companion on the youtube channel It will contain some visuals that go along with our conversation and some things that you will not hear on the audio podcast.
3: And I have on my Christmas shirt, my Christmas vacation shirt for the season. Very nice.
1: You can find that on YouTube at Classic Horrors TV. That's at, at sign Classic Horrors TV. So at, 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 Star Wars, ATAT. Okay. Our first feedback comes from Alistair, our friend Down Under, right? New Zealand is Down Under. That's
3: Down Under, just north of Down Under.
1: Alistair does the Hamarama podcast with our friend Steve Turek. Let's hear what he had to say.
2: Hello, Jeff and Rich. This is Alistair Hughes from New Zealand and half of Hammerama, which you very kindly promoted on your show. And Steve and I both appreciate that very much. Just wanted to drop you a quick note to say how much I loved your Raven episode. I hadn't seen the first one that you discussed, the Karloff and Lugosi one, although of course I'd heard a lot about it. But I remember really loving the Vincent Price AIP one when I saw it at quite a young age. And I really like the sort of magical duel scenario. I've always enjoyed that in films, the more whimsical fantasy aspect. But what I really wanted to quickly talk about was how much I'm looking forward to your Naughty Animals episode, which is coming up. It certainly was an interesting time for cinema for many reasons, because of a particularly large fish, which made Steven Spielberg into the incredible force that he that he still is. But I just wanted to talk about my own recollections of a film that was very much influenced by Jaws, down to having a simple four-letter title. I think this might be a film that has been lost to the mists of time, called Dogs. I actually went to see this at the cinema with a friend of mine one Saturday afternoon, I think. And even back then, and even back then, we were very aware that we were watching what was essentially a B-movie. Pretty much dogs turning on their owners, turning on mankind in general. The only reason that I really remember this film was that I was always a really big fan of David McCallum. I'd seen him in a British series based on Kolditz, the prisoner of war camp. And of course, I'd really enjoyed him in The Invisible Man. This was even before he went on to appear in Sapphire and Steel, which was one of my all-time favourite TV series. Anyway, David McCallum starred in this film, and one of his co-stars was Linda Gray, who went on to appear in Dallas quite a few years into the future. So, dogs, basically, all I remember really are various scenes of humans lying on the floor, kind of half-heartedly wrestling with... uh, dogs of various breeds some of them not particularly large or threatening and I seem to remember these dogs tearing quite graphically at the throats of their victims even then I wondered how they did it I wonder if it was some sort of substance which the dogs found particularly delicious that they'd maybe paint onto the stunt person's necks I don't know but anyway you have some fairly graphic scenes of what appears to be flesh being shredded by by these pooches so I'm not sure if you're intending to reference dogs or make any mention of it at all but I thought I would just contribute that memory it was one of those films that I've often thought did, did I did I actually see that but yes it uh, did exist it did tour cinemas but whether it actually appears on David McCallum's CV or not is maybe another question Anyway, guys, please keep up the fantastic work. Always really look forward to your episodes, uh, your repartee with one another. And um, I'm particularly looking forward to this episode. So take care and I'll talk to you again soon. Bye.
3: Well, thank you, Mr. Hughes, for calling in. Your voice always just reeks podcast and radio. First off, loving the podcast as always. I am an episode or two behind, which will get corrected. By the time everyone hears this, it will have been corrected. Naughty animals. <laughs> I, I love that, that phrase. My guy, that that made me smile this morning. I've never seen dogs, and I'm not even sure I've ever been aware of dogs, but I love David McCallum. He is always this kind of quirky actor in my mind. He's, he's got a very unique way. Sapphire and Steel, I love when people talk about that, and it's a series that I've never really dived into. It's out there, I think, on Amazon, and it's been on my queue for years now, and I've just never had the time to sit down and watch it. I've always wanted to check it out. That kind of wants me to see dogs now. Have you seen dogs?
1: I have not. I am like you in my lack of awareness about it for some reason. I And Linda Gray, pre-Dallas. I
3: mean, you and I being Dallas fans from our, our Ute. I would uh, say that's another draw. So I would say dogs is going to have to go on the ever-growing to watch list. But thank you for calling in with your thoughts. Well, I have to tell Alistair also that I've prepared some
1: feedback for you for Hammerama. So be expecting that soon. I was waiting for this most recent episode because I had a particular comment to say. So that's headed your way. It's so interesting because Severin had their big Black Friday sale, and one of the movies was The Dogs from 1979. And I thought, oh, my gosh, what a coincidence that this movie Alistair's telling us about is coming out on Blu-ray. Well, it is not Dogs. It is The Dogs. This is a French film starring Gerard Depardieu. I don't believe it's a horror film, but the synopsis is somewhat Encouraging, after several inhabitants of a new city were bitten by dogs, a young doctor tries to stop the climb of violence. So, Alistair, have you ever seen The Dogs? And if so, let us know what you thought. Our next message is from Bill Mize at the Bill Watches Movies podcast.
4: Hello, my Rich, and hello, my Jeff. It's Bill Mize from over at the Bill Watches Movies podcast, and I am calling in to give you my two cents on the Nature Gone Amok episode, also known as episode number 74, for those of you keeping score at home. Now, speaking of playing along at home... I loved Steve Turek's suggestion of using a bingo card to keep track of all the various shenanigans going on in the two movies. I thought I'd break out my own Bill Watches Movies bingo card and see if I can make a bingo myself. Now, for my first letter, I'm going to use either Rich's mention of It's Alive or y'all's mention of Michael and Sarah, who also appeared in It's Alive. Now, recently I appeared on the B movie cast show with Mary and Nick, and I chose It's Alive for the movie for us to discuss. So I'm just going to go ahead and count that. Now, if your listeners want to head over there and listen to our discussion and then leave feedback praising my appearance to the stars, well, Who am I to dissuade them? Next up, there was an Omega Man mention. And as all my gentle listeners know, the community voted for that to be our third anniversary episode. If you want to listen to some Colonel Moses versus the vampires action, then that's the Bill Watches Movies episode for you. Third, I'm going to use Frankenstein's Daughter, which was a movie that I discussed way back in the year of our Lord 2019 in episode number seven. I really liked the movie, and I loved Donald Murphy, the sassy lead who played the very distant Frankenstein heir. Okay, that's three down and two to go. For the fourth slot, I'm going with Richard Jekyll, who, as we know, appeared as the shark whisperer in Mako, Jaws of Death. That was our episode number 18 for all your dollar store Jaws action. Finally, and for slot number five, and to complete my bingo, I'm going to use my free slot for Linda Day George. Now, if you were a boy of a certain age in the 1970s, I have no doubt that you, like me, had a bit of a crush on her. But because her husband was also a mainstay of the 1970s film and television scene, you just really couldn't hate on him for having the good taste to marry her. There you go. That's my Classic Horrors Club bingo card. And as always, I want to thank you two for doing what you do and for being part of my Monster Kid life. I love you guys, and I love your show. Please take good care of yourself, and we'll talk soon. And Jeff, I will see you at Monster Bash in June. Bye-bye, y'all.
3: Thank you, Bill, for calling in and, and, and creative indeed. I, I loved how you you brought forth Steve Turk's bingo idea. I love how you were able to kind of tie that in to some of your greatest hits on your show. I feel like it's been forever since we've connected because you're not on that social media thing. And I totally understand. Love, of course, that the show is, is uh, doing well. I'm looking forward to what you got coming up in 2023. As always, great to hear from you, Bill.
1: Yes, Bill, I do love the bingo card idea. Thank you for seeing it to some fruition. Interesting story. Very quickly, we're planning our Christmas party at work, and I volunteered to be the person that designs our bingo card for meet someone who dot, dot, dot. So this is a icebreaker activity to get people, well, to force people to talk to people they don't know and find out, oh, you were born in February. Oh, you play golf. It's a bingo card. You have to ask people questions. thought that was interesting, all this talk of bingo. But, Richard, we really do have to come up with something. And I had an idea I forgot to tell you we should talk about. Also, It's Alive. Thanks for reminding us about that on the B-Movie cast. I've got to hear your thoughts on that. It has fallen down the list with an onslaught of, of newer podcasts, but it is still downloaded, sitting there, waiting to listen. So I can't wait to hear what you have to say about that. One more voicemail from Jonathan. Perfect timing for any of you that here were recording on Saturday and you think, oh, it's too late. I didn't have a chance to do feedback. Oh, no, no, no. We got this from him this morning and you can do the same.
0: Hey, guys, it's Jonathan. Just wanted to check in. It's been probably an episode or two since I've checked in, but I just wanted to uh, give a little feedback based on your last episode which was great. Nature's Revenge, uh, Nature Gone Wild, Echo Horror, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it's a really fun, fun little subgenre. Frogs, I have seen many times. I grew up watching ran in Heavy Rotation uh, on our local network, along with movies like Squirm and the Swarm, Grizzly. Uh. It's interesting. I remember it being more campy than it actually was in Revisiting, because I haven't watched it in many years. There's a little camp, but it, it's played pretty straight overall, and I, I I expected the characters to be more, like, caricature-y, but overall, they really weren't. I enjoyed Ray Milland a lot. I don't know if he enjoyed doing this film. I probably have a hunch he didn't, <laughs> but I know he and actors like Joseph Cotton and others showed up in a lot of these genre films later in their careers. Sam Elliott, actually, the whole cast, was pretty strong, I thought. Kind of a slow burn, you know, the, the little creepy crawlies kind of just, all the critters kind of slowly make their way to their victims and kind of finish them off, almost in a more of a subtle way, so to speak, like the giant turtle uh, and some of the others. But, no, I really enjoyed Frogs. I enjoyed it as a kid. I, I enjoyed it, visiting it now. And then Day of the Animals. Uh, Yasmin and I actually watched that, This past summer, it kind of got got kind of slipped into our summer 1970s disaster series. It's one of those films that could kind of straddle Echo Horror, Nature Gone Wild, and disaster films. So we watched it, really enjoyed Leslie Nielsen's over-the-top performance. The cast is pretty strong. As far as The Kills, I found The Kills a lot more visceral and kind of uh, savage than in, um, I don't know if that's the right word, but than in Frog. A pretty brutal kills, and Leslie Nielsen obviously goes pretty mad, and you get the sense he's already a creep and just becomes, you know, a creep on steroids. Definitely worth a watch. It was actually my first viewing of it, and I, I thought I had seen it. The name of the movie sounded very familiar, but when I sat down to watch it, it was not the movie I was thinking of. I think I was thinking of a film that took place in Africa, and there was kind of like a rogue, a rogue lion knocking off folks on a safari. I still don't know what that film is <laughs> I'm referring to uh, to search for it. Anyway, to the films, we've, uh Yasmeen and I have dived into the echo horror thing. Uh, she really gets a kick out of disaster films, and now she's enjoying the echo horror stuff. We're currently watching Kingdom of the Spiders, uh, Phase 4, which I had never seen. We're watching now, and we've watched a bunch of others. It's really fun. As far as your upcoming episode, I'm really excited to hear what you have to say about these two films. I believe you're doing Val Luton and you're doing The Leopard Man and Curse of uh, the Cat People. Leopard Man I've never seen, I don't believe, and Curse of the Cat People I haven't seen in many years. I believe that's a Robert Wise film, and I know he also did um, The Body Snatcher, another Val Luton produced film, I believe which is amazing. But anyway, I'm going to have to revisit these films. Obviously, I didn't get to do my homework on time, as usual, so I totally would have flunked out of this class by now, but (laughs) I'm still looking forward to what you have to say, and I'll catch up and watch these films soon. Anyway, I hope you guys are enjoying your early holiday season. We'll catch you soon. Keep up the great work, and uh, I just look forward to what's coming next. Okay, take care, guys. Bye-bye.
3: Jonathan, it is always fantastic to hear from you. I remember... You checking out Day of the Animals this past summer, because I love how you guys kind of do these theme months or you get into your disaster film. You kind of celebrate those films, and I think you will enjoy what we have coming up in January. No, you would not have flunked out from the class. I'm sure there's some extra credit along the way. Honestly, you probably have earned bonus points whenever you come on the show and bring forth your kaiju knowledge. You're still in the A category. I think you're going to pass the class with flying colors. I do
1: want to mention Jonathan did leave a follow-up message, and I took it as being just for you and me, Rich, and not necessarily everybody. But he did apologize for any background noise. He was walking Stella to some type of event, and he was outside, and he was concerned about that. And Plus, he's a little bit got a cold or something, so he apologized for the way he sounded. But we don't care. We're just glad that he left a message. So thank you much. That, I believe, is all of old business unless you have anything else, Richard.
3: No, no. A great month for new members and feedback. Always fun to have that. Yes. The more participation, the better the show, I've always said.
1: So let's dive in then to Val Luton. How would you like to start us out,
3: Richard? I guess we'll start off by saying this. There, there is a couple documentaries out there where you can learn a little bit more about Val Luton. We'll mention those maybe towards the end of the show. Some of the information I got was from that. Some of it's out there on the Internet. Val Luton was born on May 7th, 1904 in Yalta, Imperial Russia, and that is now known as Crimea, Ukraine. He was born Vladimir Ivanovich Leventon. In 1906, at the age of two, he moved to Berlin with his mother and sister. This was after his mother left his father. And then in 1909, they made their way to the United States. He would eventually change his name to Waldemir. Ivan Luton, and then eventually would adapt the name Val Luton as a pseudonym during his early days of writing, and that name is essentially what he is known by today. He would eventually marry and have a daughter. Unfortunately, his troubled childhood is something that plagued him really his whole life, and he did have a strained relationship with his daughter. That's kind of the thing that I, as I was doing my research on Val Lewton and watching this one key documentary from Martin Scorsese, he did kind of had a, a sad life. It was a series of, of stop and goes in his career. At the age of 16, he was working as a society reporter for a newspaper in Connecticut until he lost his job because he fabricated a story about a truckload of chickens dying in a heat wave. <laughs> Not sure that would be newsworthy today, but back then, hey, that that would have been the headline news. And apparently it was. It just wasn't true. He went on to study journalism in college. He eventually published some fiction, some nonfiction, and some poetry. So he was actually a published writer long before Hollywood beckoned. In 1932, he wrote a novel called No Bed of Her Own, And that would be adapted into a feature film called No Man of Her Own that starred Clark Gable and Carol Lombard. So pretty impressive way to get your Hollywood career started. Then he takes kind of this sidestep in 1933. And I don't believe this was mentioned in Martin Scorsese's documentary, but he wrote a pornographic novel called Grushenka, Three Times a Woman. Now, he wrote it under a pseudonym to protect him because that was kind of against the law in 1933. It was translated from German text to kind of protect the innocent kind of thing. It's 1933. I don't know how pornographic it was. 1933 standards, certainly not where they are today. So it's probably not as bad as it seems. He had to protect his name. Otherwise, it could have been a career ender for him. And I don't know at what point that came out, probably many years later, and I would assume possibly even after his death before it really became public knowledge that he had written this novel.
1: Richard, before you continue, I'd like to interrupt. One thing that I did discover in my research was that in 1931, he wrote a story for Weird Tales called The Baguita. and that was about a woman that turned into a panther. So when we get to his movie's we may discuss that again, but I just thought that was very interesting that uh, he had written a story
3: that would so closely resemble one of his movies. Excellent. I didn't know that. that that's that's very cool. I knew, Like I said, I knew that he had done fiction, nonfiction and poetry, but very cool that he was already dabbling in the genre. Yeah. One of his first big jobs in Hollywood was working for MGM. He worked as a writer under David O. Selznick, Big Productions. You might have multiple writers, and a writer might contribute one scene or some random pieces of dialogue. So he actually worked on Gone with the Wind. Supposedly, he did not think Gone with the Wind was filmable and advised against it. I'm sure once the film became a huge hit, he probably you know, ate his own words. Gone with the Wind obviously went on to become one of the biggest movies of all time. I got a
1: story about that as well. I didn't gather that he didn't think it was filmable. However, was very unhappy and was doing this writing and not getting credited. He wrote a scene that he thought would be unfilmable just to kind of stick it to him. And it was the scene where it's a big, wide scene where they like a close up and then it goes out and you see bodies lying everywhere it's a yeah yeah I'm, it's been a long time since i've seen it but they showed it in the documentary i watched and lo and behold they did film it it was filmable and it turned out being a great scene and
3: he didn't need any credit <laughs> and i think that's one of the most iconic scenes yeah in the movie his work at MGM didn't go unnoticed and that was what led him to be hired by RKO Pictures in 1942 such that his work was up to that point for MGM was so well received, he was named kind of the unofficial head of a new horror division at RKO. Universal had been dominating that for a while, and RKO kind of wanted to get in, see what they could do, but they wanted to do it a little bit differently. And in a very unique way, I'm not sure if I was Val Lewton, if I would have agreed to do what they did. He had three rules that he had to follow. All films were to be under a budget of $150,000. Okay, you could pull that off, right? The runtime, less than 75 minutes. That wasn't a huge ask for what was clearly going to be considered a B film, because most films were about 75 minutes at that point. But the third rule is what would have been really difficult. They would be giving him the film title, And he had to write something around the title. And to me, that seems crazy. They wanted to control the title because they wanted to draw people in. And left it up to him to come up with a movie that would somehow fit with the title. The first film was Cat People in 1942. And I think he did a pretty good job (laughs) of tying in because Cat People is definitely one of the best films, I think, in that run of films that he was in charge of.
1: Richard, it seems like I watched a trashier documentary than you did. I mean, you, you've you got all the facts and information. I've got these like sort of scandalous stories that go along. Not really scandalous, but I want to paint a little bit of picture about the state of RKO at this time in 1941 and 1942. What fascinates me about this is how Val Luton came to RKO, what his task was as you've just explained and sort of how he came about to accomplish that in what's going to end up to be what nine films in in just a few years at RKO. Orson Welles had been working at RKO and supposedly he had nearly destroyed the studio. This was a studio that wanted yeah. showmanship not genius. That is why coupled with the fact that they wanted RKO didn't really own any properties that they could make horror movies of King Kong but That was sort of a different thing, more of an adventure. They did want something to try to follow up what Universal was doing. They hired, as you said, Val Lewton to do that. Nobody expected any quality from it. Just those three characteristics. They did also want it to be different from Universal, which they definitely accomplished. What Val Lewton did that I think is interesting is he got to hire his own people. So he had people that were sympathetic to his vision And together as this team, they really accomplished. So I know Val Lewton's the one that put it all together. He gets the credit, but you've got to think about the writers, the directors, the cinematographers, especially. And for those first couple films, it was various combinations of these core people as a team that were able to produce these great movies. Now, later on, and we'll probably talk about how that team kind of gets split arguably, I don't want to say the quality, but maybe the effectiveness as the film sort of decreases as time goes on. But starting out, what he did with his mandates was just amazing.
3: You've got some big name directors, but they weren't known at the time. Cat People was directed by Jacques Turnier. Of course, well known now, but at the time he was kind of fresh out of the gate. Another director that that will come along here shortly will be Robert Wise one of the most beloved directors uh, of Hollywood of all time, but he was essentially a nobody in the 1940s, and the, these films was what got him the start. We'll talk probably a little more about Cat People when we get into our second film, Curse of the Cat People, which is a pseudo-sequel. But Cat People established, and kind of set the bar rather high, but it established what these films were going to be. The best way to describe him, in my mind is like, Horror Noir. They're very much stylized films with brilliant use of shadows. And putting the horror on the back burner, oftentimes it's what you don't see, right? That's all these films. The horror element is often left to your imagination. Cat People, prime example where you never see... The woman, uh, arena turn into a cat person, but it's brilliantly implied. The scene in the pool is absolutely brilliant. It established that these films were going to make you think a little bit. And nothing against Universal, because I love the Universal films, but let's be honest that in the 1940s, Universal had taken a step or two down in the quality of their films. Absolutely fun to watch. But The Mummy from 1932 with Boris Karloff is certainly leaps and bounds above the Lon Chaney trilogy that we got in the early 40s. When you look at Frankenstein or The Bride of Frankenstein, they're in a whole different caliber than Ghost of Frankenstein or House of Frankenstein, what have you. Archaea wanted to do something different. They weren't expecting quality, but they got it. And they got something that was going to set these films apart from all the others that are being cranked out around this time. This is not Poverty Row quality films. These are films that were intended to be B-list, but ended up being A-list, really, for the most part.
1: I don't know if it happened literally like this, but this documentary I watched you know, said The Wolfman was a big hit. They told Val Lewton, make it a cat and make it a woman. And that's what he did. But what he gave them wasn't what they wanted. He was more interested in making what really frightens people. And what really frightens people is the psychology. It's the anticipation, the expectation of what's going to happen that is scary. And he showed just enough of that to make it really effective and just to hint at anything further than that. I'll be darned, you know, it was successful. Cat People had a great marketing campaign. It did big business and it allowed him Continue at RKO and
3: do more of whatever he wanted to do. Definitely the reins were loosened quite a bit. Essentially, he, he was untethered now by the studio. He could do what he wanted, except for the film titles. They still controlled that. Here's your next title, make a film with it. Well, the next one, I Walked With a Zombie. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. Francis D., Tom Conway starring. I enjoy this one a lot. It's a very different zombie film and it's not a white zombie right it's not revolt of the zombies or revenge of the zombies or all the zombie films we were getting at this time this definitely had a higher quality to it what are your thoughts just quickly here randomly about
1: i liked it again it's been a while but if i look at my rating system that i've used for years i rated it the same as cat people i gave them both an eight out of ten although i don't remember it exactly and i haven't apparently written a review of it i thought i had i must have liked it very much
3: (laughs) I would agree. Eight out of 10 is a pretty good rating for this one. It's it's definitely very enjoyable. It, oftentimes when I'm wanting to watch just eye candy, right, in the 1940s, I'll stick in Universal Horror. And the Val Lewton films, I always know. It's like, ah, oh, those are a little bit more cerebral. I've got to be in the right frame of mind for them. Rewatching I Walked With a Zombie, it's like, why haven't I seen this more? Because I really do enjoy it. It's got some great visuals and definitely, yeah, it absolutely continued the trend. And so we went right into his next film, which is the first film that we're really going to kind of dive into a little more proper. And that is The Leopard Man, which was released on June 25th, 1943.
4: what sort of man would kill like a leopard and leave the traces of a leopard? Crazy guy. But he'd have to know about leopards. Have access to leopard claws and hair.
1: We're not going to catch a train, darling. We're gonna stay right here and catch a murderer.
3: When a publicity stunt goes wrong, a wild leopard escapes into the streets and a string of murders begins. But is this animal responsible for all of them? Is its owner, Charlie Halcomb, known as the Leopard Man involved? Or is there a serial killer on the loose? Nightclub promoter Jerry Manning tries to solve the mystery before his girlfriend, Kiki, becomes the next victim.
1: Richard, before we dive into this, I wanted to circle back to the comment about RKO giving Val Lewton the title and he had to make a movie from it. it he had great writers, and he, but he didn't necessarily come up with the ideas from scratch. As we talked about earlier, that story he wrote for Weird Tales, that Bagheera at least could have something to do with Cat People. I don't know about the particulars. And this movie, The Leopard Man, was actually based on a novel called Black Alibi by Cornell Woolrich. Ardell Ray wrote the screenplay. It was directed by Jacques Tenure. It starred Dennis O'Keefe, Margot, Gene Brooks, James Bell, and Abner Bieberman. Running time is a tight 66 minutes. You gave us the release date already. It is available on Blu-ray from Shout Factory. What are
3: your overall thoughts about The Leopard Man? This is probably my third viewing of this film. I would have discovered this for the first time probably late nineties. I'd seen cat people, I think on AMC, maybe in the early nineties. And this is only my third time. It's my least favorite actually of the Val Lewton films. There is a lot to love in this film, but I've always felt like the movie tends to kind of meander a little bit. It kind of shifts from one character to the other It's a bit of a slow burn in a way, even though for the running time, until you really get to the end when the plot twist, if you will, is kind of presented or things are revealed. Visually, it's stunning and there's some great scenes in it. Sometimes it's scarier what you can't see than what you can see. And you're left sometimes with asking yourself the question, are the events real? Is it imagination of the characters? The young girl getting locked inside the cemetery was absolutely brilliant. I have always remembered the scene of the young girl who's going out for the corn meal or whatever that her mother sends her, and she's scared to go out, and she basically kicks her out the door, locks the door. The girl coming back, and the leopard is supposedly chasing her, and she's banging on the door. The mother's like, ah, shut up. And then, of course, here's the screams of her daughter as she's being killed. Absolutely stunning the way that all of that was filmed. You can see the genius that Jacques Tournier was going to have. It just kind of almost plotted along. But in reading some things after viewing the movie from director William Friedkin, it's now making me think is there more to this than I've always kind of given it credit for? And William Friedkin, of course, well known director, of The Exorcist. This is one of his all-time favorite films. He did the commentary for the film. And I know you're going to dive in a bit more into what William Friedkin Friedkin says about it. He believes that Psycho and Pulp Fiction owe a debt of gratitude to The Leopard Man. And I've not been able to find any evidence supporting that Hitchcock and Tarantino ever said... Well, yes, Val Luton inspired me to do this, but he really sees a lot of what's going on in this film, talked about like the characters, several of the the victims, right? They were being let down by parents or absent father. You've got to wonder like how much Val Luton had to say, because Val Luton, of course, his father was absent in his life. He did not have a good childhood. That persona was brought forth in the films that he produced. When you take a look at some of the things in this film, like who's to blame for the actual murders? There's actually a lot of people that you could blame. The character of Jerry Manning, bringing the leopard into town, not the smartest thing. Yeah, it was a publicity stunt, but clearly he holds a measure of responsibility. And that is touched on in the film. I mean, the police... They're looking at him like, yeah, you know, you did this as a publicity stunt. Now look what's happening. And questioning every motive that he has whenever he's trying to go out and do good. They're thinking it's just another part of his publicity stunt. Margot's character of (laughs) Clo-Clo, what's the name? She scared it. So she played a part in the leopard getting loose and then wreaking havoc. Plus, you've got the parents ignoring their children, which was horrific. And gut-wrenching, obviously, you could connect that to Val Luton's sense of abandonment that he had. Admittedly, I didn't really catch all of that, didn't really think about it. But then when I read about it after the fact, there might be more here than I've given this film credit for. What did William Friedkin say? in the commentary that you watch that, that might kind of connect with that. The
1: funny thing is for a long, long time, I was a Netflix disc subscriber as well. And the discs would come and shh, don't tell me when I would burn them. And that's how I have a digital library of some movies that I don't own. I got it put on Plex. I got it all set up in the living room. I go to fire up the leopard man and it starts and it's got the commentary. And this happens sometimes when I burn a disc, I get the commentary and I don't. And It's too late to do anything about it. So I didn't listen to it by choice, but it was fascinating. And yes, this wasn't my least favorite Val Luton film, but it was second to last. And and I say was because you listen to him talk and say these things that you said, and I might find a couple that you missed, but it makes you think that you're watching a different movie. And if the things he says are true, this is a much, much better movie than I have ever made it out to be. Already because of that, I've bumped it a little bit in status. I do need to watch it again without the commentary. This is going to be a weird comparison. I kind of compare it to Day of the Animals, right? Because if you look at the scenes and you dissect them, and I did a lot of that making the video, was finding those scenes, they're terrific. But there's something about the way they're put together, the glue in between them, that if you just watch the movie from beginning to end, it just it doesn't quite work. So I liked yeah. the animals more than I did. I watch these scenes. I think, oh my gosh, this is a much better movie than I thought. I watch it and it just something doesn't click. I have a feeling that's the same with Leopard Man. As just a story, it doesn't quite work, but it is made up of some incredible parts. The point of Psycho that he is mentioning is that the Leopard Man has a way of following a character and then they run into a character and then the narrative diverges and you go with that new character and the other character is left he elaborated on that in psycho of course janet lee being the first part of the story and then getting knocked off and it goes with other characters that's what he says there pulp fiction it's a matter of going with these different characters seeing different stories eventually they're connected but you don't realize that until later that's the connection he made with Pulp Fiction. It's been a long time since I've seen that. I don't exactly remember that that's the way that it's structured.
3: All of these films have the use of shadows, but also the use of sound. And that's not something that I really picked up on at first glance or listen. But now I'm thinking back. Sound is important in several of these films. In this film, there's the sound of the castanets, the dripping water, the sound of the leopard and cat people. You're not just seeing it. You're hearing it. And again, you're not seeing everything. It's like a lot of it's implied. There's shadows. Did he comment on any of that in in the commentary? A little
1: bit. When you talk about the sound, when we get to the curse of the cat, people, I've got really something to say with that where that perfectly demonstrates what you're saying. So I hope I remember. He didn't talk a lot about sound. He did about the shadows and everything. And he actually said something that to me, if I were to have one sentence to sum up Val Lewton's movies. I really, really liked what he said. He said, the enemy of horror films is coherence. The more they try to explain, the less effective they are. A good horror film should be flawed, just like your nightmares. He elaborated a little more on what you said about everybody has some responsibility for this. That scene that you described with the mother not letting... Her daughter
3: in is she not just as responsible for that her daughter's death that is dark stuff you feel for the mother because for the rest of her life she's going to be plagued with the fact that if she would have left the door open her daughter would have lived that would be horrific as a parent and that's something that you would never bounce back i don't care how much therapy in the world you have You're going to have nightmares about that for the rest of your life.
1: That scene does have a little bit of a payoff that a lot of his suspenseful scenes don't. Because after you hear, and in fact, the other murders in this movie, it doesn't even go as far as this one. This one you hear and you imagine what's happening and it's horrific. But then you see that little trail of blood come in, not just run under the door, but then spread and go into the separation of the tiles. It freaking goes probably a little further than I would in taking all this guilt that other people have in saying that that represents the collective guilt that society has for any disaster that we face in the world. It's a fascinating commentary and whatever you read sounds to represent it pretty well. So I definitely encourage people to go that route the next time they watch this. A lot of commentary, psycho mumbo-jumbo, and we've talked before, you can read anything into anything, you know. But this just seems a little more legit than most, and I really like and I want to see it applied to the movie without the comment.
3: And I think that Leopard Man is generally referred to as one of the lesser valued in films. Yeah,
1: and to hear him talk, it's like it is the best of
3: them. Yes. I think there is a lot more to Leopard Man, whether it was intentional by the filmmakers or whether it's now something we're seeing after the fact. Sometimes I think unintentional things happen with filmmakers. They set out to achieve something, they do it. And then later on, there's things that as a moviegoer, we may inject into the film experience when that was never the intent of the filmmakers. Doesn't mean that it's not real. Doesn't mean that it doesn't impact you the same. Uh, I think it will be interesting the next time I check this out with this information now looking at it a little bit differently it did not do well at the time of its release the studio didn't care for it it wasn't the film they were imagining when they said the leopard man and i will admit that even knowing all of this stuff about the movie and what it was possibly injected into it or what it means i will say that the journey to the climax is ultimately better than the climax itself i feel like the climax falls a little flat when things are revealed. Not a horrible ending, but I do feel like the rest of the movie surpasses what ultimately you get in the end. I will
1: reserve my judgment on that until I watch it again, because again, the way he talks about it, it's like really, really clever. And the way it builds and your suspects are eliminated. And I have a sense though, that you're right. That's just not somehow how it plays out. The
3: series of individual events leading to the climax, I think, surpass what what we ultimately get at the end. Not to say that the twist isn't interesting, because it is, but I just think ultimately the way that the finale plays out Mm. is less effective than all of the series of events leading up to it.
1: I don't think we want to get too spoilery, but... No, 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 no. I get what you're saying. There are some choices that seem a little bit hat kind of to
3: wrap things yes. up, even though the overall thought of it is clever, I think. I don't have much in the way of trivia because we've really kind of dived into a lot of what little tidbits of trivia that I had. The only thing I could I would really want to share is that the black leopard was named Dynamite and is the same leopard that was seen in the cat people. Dynamite had a good 42 and 43. He <laughs> I don't know of any other films that Dynamite did, but He was certainly, or she was certainly, busy around this time period. I do have a few just random things about the cast and director. Jacques Tournaire is is a name that you probably, people are familiar with, besides Cat People and The Leopard Man. He also did I Walked With a Zombie, which we mentioned. Of course, Curse of the Demon is another film that it probably even surpasses Cat People as far as as notoriety. Curse of the Demon is a much-beloved film. I did not realize that he did the comedy of terrors. I didn't know he did an episode of the Twilight Zone. He did the night call episode, which is where the woman keeps getting the phone call and the phone line is down on the grave. That's a classic episode. Everyone knows or has heard the name and and has seen at least cat people or curse the demon. So you have an idea for what uh, he brought to the table. We mentioned Dennis O'Keefe playing the lead, Jerry Manning, probably the most well-known of the cast, 280 film credits. He was in You'll Find Out. It was also in 32 episodes of his own TV show in 1959-1960. I don't have much on Margot, the actress with the one name, and playing a character with two names, clu <laughs> uh, She was in Lost Horizon, the uh, classic from 37, I think. Gene Brooks who played Kiki Walker was also in The Seventh Victim. Isabel Jewell, who played Maria the fortune teller was in Gone with the Wind, was also in The Seventh Victim and would be in the 19 I think 53 film Man in the Attic. James Bell played Dr. Galbraith, I Walked with a Zombie, was in The Spiral Staircase and was in The Monkey's Paw 1933. That's a film that is sadly not available. Publicly, but you and I both had the opportunity to see that at the Monster Bash. Abner Biberman, I believe, is how it's pronounced, plays Charlie Halcombe. Very weird way that that's spelled H O W C O M E. He was the owner of The Leopard. He was in uh, Another Thin Man in that popular film series. He was also in His Girl Friday, which is a classic uh, Cary Grant comedy as well as a much lesser film, The Monster and the Girl. Not a horrible film. Just not a whole lot happens in that one. The Leopard Man is available on Blu-ray, as you stated, from Shout Factory. It's currently selling for $30 on Amazon, which is, in my mind, I'm sorry, it's way too high for this movie because I don't know that there's much in the way of extras. They didn't have anything listed. That's just me. I guess I'm kind of cheap. But I think you can probably find the DVD out there cheaper than that. 1943. Obviously, 1943, there's no television. Things were a little different. They didn't have the weekly top 10. They didn't even have like a regular box office reports like they do now. So we're kind of going a little old school, kind of going back to what we used to do with a tweak. I wanted to take a look and see what what were some of the top songs for the week ending June 19th, 1943. The top song of the week was Taking a Chance on Love by Benny Goodman and his orchestra, with apparently the lead singer on the song was Helen Forrest. Other popular songs during the summer of 1943 included That Old Black Magic by Glenn Miller and his orchestra with Skip Nelson and the Modern Airs. Coming in on a wing and a prayer by the Song Spinners. And then I've heard that song before by Harry James and his orchestra with Helen Forrest. Helen was apparently a busy gal in the summer of 43. (laughs) Yeah, a little different. Not the top 10 from the 70s that you and I would definitely know, but definitely we're in the midst of the big band era in 1943. So Glenn Miller, Benny Goodman, Harry James. Yeah, good stuff. The highest grossing film of 1943, it included This is the Army, (laughs) $8.3 million dollars. Not a film that probably has as much love today, but 1943, it was big wartime, and this was something that was going to draw people into the theaters. A film that's well-known today, but yeah, it doesn't get as talked about as much. For Whom the Bell Tolls earned $6.3 million, the number seven movie of the year, not the top film of the year as far as box office goes, but number seven, Casablanca. It made $3.4 million. It did go on to become the biggest movie of the year, though, because it went on to win the Academy Award for Best Film and Best Director. That film is a much beloved classic. And even though For Whom the Bell Tolls is probably well-known amongst film classics these days, Casablanca is certainly the biggest of the year. Just to mention a few other horror films around this time period, Uh, Phantom of the Opera from Universal was released in August Speaking of zombies, Revenge of the Zombies was released and Sherlock Holmes faces death. Part of the uh, Basil Rathbone Nigel Bruce film series came out in September. No television, obviously, in 1943, at least not widespread. You know, we were still about five years, six years away from people really starting to buy television sets at the end of the 1940s with Milton Berle and all of that early, early television craze. But 1943, people listened to the radio. Really, this is the golden age of radio because people were listening to it not only for entertainment, but for information on the war. And one of the most popular radio shows of 1943 was Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Fireside Chat, where he would address the nation and talk about the state of the war, talk about whatever was going on that was a way to try to connect with the American people and to help them through the trying times that everyone was experiencing. These are considered classics. And I've, I've heard a few fireside chats over the years. And, and whether you agree with the politics or not, you can't deny that Roosevelt really, I think, was the first president to take the power of radio and to use it to connect, much like later presidents would use television as a way to connecting with the American people. A few popular shows of the day included Your Hit Parade with a young Frank Sinatra. I wasn't quite the chairman of the board in 1943, and his sound was very different because he was a young man, but those are fun to listen to. A couple of my personal favorites were also very popular in 1943, Fibber McGee and Molly and the Jack Benny Show. Bob Hope had the number one show on radio, and Bing Crosby was incredibly popular with his Kraft Music Hall i wanted to share this story a big story from radio on november 4th the evan costello show resumed on the nbc radio network they had been gone for six months and lou costello had health problems he was battling a severe case of of rheumatic fever and he comes back big show back and while rehearsing for the show He was notified that his youngest son had accidentally drowned in the family pool just two days shy of his first birthday. No one would have said anything had Lou left immediately. But after six months off, he was a showman and he said the show must go on. I don't know how he did it. They did the show. No one in the audience. Radio shows had live audiences back then. Nobody knew what had happened. No knowledge until you get to the very end of the show, and he abruptly rushed off the stage in tears. Now, they could have done this on the radio, nobody would have known at home what was going on. But at the very end, his partner, Bud Abbott, delivered the tragic news live over the entire network to the shocked audience that Lou had lost his son. And he commended Lou. Bud and Lou would have a rift that would occur a few years after this. Actually, it was Bud Abbott donating money to Lou Costello's personal kind of boys club that he had. Donating that money, and I believe it was in the memory of his son. But that act of donating money to the boys club was what reconciled Bud and Lou. So if you watch the movie, The Time of Their Lives where it seems very disconnected. Bud and Lou are playing separate characters that have very little screen time. I think of any screen time, very, very little. And that was right in the middle of their rift. And so shortly after that, they reconciled and, and would go on to have this revitalized career in the late 1940s with having Costello meet Frankenstein and all the films that followed. That happened in November of 1943. So we go back to Val Lewton. The Leopard Man has been released, and. Before the year is out, there are two more films that are uh, released in quick succession. Next comes The Seventh Victim, which stars Kim Hunter and Tom Conway, a film that has to do with a cult and a a missing woman and her sister is in pursuit. And then we got The Ghost Ship before the end of the year, which starred Richard Dix, which is very different film then the seventh victim and then the leopard man three different films but yet they all had that underlying psychological noir world of shadows and darkness theme the ghost ship has to do with basically an unhinged captain great climax in that film the ghost ship I will actually say, is one of my favorites of the Val Luton films. For some reason, that film has always engaged me, and it engaged me just as much this go-around. I believe this was only my second time watching The Seventh Victim. I do enjoy it. There's a lot of fun there. Not one of my favorites. I like it probably a notch above The Leopard Man, What are your thoughts on on The Seventh Victim and and Ghost Ship, real quick? I rated them the same.
1: Ghost Ship, I remember nothing about. Seventh Victim, I watched more recently, and I think it was my second time. And I liked it more than the first time I saw it. In my mind, I equate it to Leopard Man in that there's a lot more in it than we probably realize. If I watch it again, I think I'm going to like it even more. I do know... My most recent viewing, what struck me with it was the horribly dark ending. Nothing wrong with that. I, I like a dark ending now and then, but for them to do that then was probably pretty uh, revolutionary. And speaking of revolutionary, <laughs> something I wanted to add about the success of all these films, and you mentioned it in that the previous segment, was the World War II was going on. That, I think, contributed to the success of these movies because it's a theory or it's even been proven that during war, people not just want to be entertained, but they do indeed like getting scared by things other than the war. It takes their mind off the war to think about cat people and leopard men and those ships and things like that.
3: With the conclusion of 1943, we are now moving into 1944, right into our next film, Curse of the Cat People.
0: Because you could, like him. So that your childhood could be bright and full of friends. But you must promise never to tell anyone about you. Not even Daddy or Mommy. No. This must be a friendship that only we should have. Why, well, Daddy, you know my friend too
4: couldn't know this woman. She died before you were born.
0: Oliver, please, let's not go on with this. The child's trembling. If that child comes here again, I'll kill her. Yes, I'll kill her. Mrs. Earl. Mrs. Earl. Mrs. Earl. Oh, God, little girl! I have to hide you. I have to hide you, little girl. My, my little girl is in her room to kill you. We mustn't let
3: her find you. When young Amy Reed creates an imaginary friend, her father scolds her for lying to him. He's been burned before by his first wife whom he claims believed her own lies, killed someone, then killed herself. Will he change his mind when Amy goes missing? Does she have a chance for survival when she takes refuge from a winter storm in an old house inhabited by two mysterious women?
1: The Curse of the Cat People was written by DeWitt Bodine, It was directed by, and I hope you can kind of explain this to me, two names, actually. Gunther von Fritsch and Robert Wise. I found nothing about why there were two directors starring Simone Simon. Is that how you say that? Simone Simon or Simone Simone? I've heard it pronounced Simone Simone. Okay. Simone Simone, Kent Smith, Jane Randolph, and Ann Carter. It runs 70 minutes, was released. The date I found was March 3rd, 1944 by RKO Radio Pictures. Can't wait to talk about this with Richard. What did you think about it?
3: I believe this is my third viewing of this film, and I like it a lot more now than the first couple of times that I saw it. I think the both times that I saw it, I was comparing it to The Cat People because this is a sequel, a pseudo-sequel of sorts, and there really aren't two entirely different films. It's really hard to call this one a sequel to the first one. Yes, you have the character of Arena. Yes, the characters of of Avali and Alice Reed are the same couple that's in the first film. But really, even with some of the descriptions of past events, they kind of play with the events to try to make it fit into this film. The character of Arena is very different in this film than she is in the first one. I think this is a case where the studio, I think, had a vision of, well, Cat People was so successful, let's let's do Curse of the Cat People, just like you would do Curse of the Mummy's Tomb or whatever. Val Luton had other ideas on the way the movie was going to go. I think if the film had a different title, it might be more respected than it is, because I think too many people want to compare it to the Cat People and say, well, it's an inferior film. There's a lot more to love in this movie than it gets credit for. In the midst of our talking about the film, I want to throw out some comments from a film historian. This movie is less of a psychological thriller that Cat People was, and really more of a fantasy in a way. And I know some people have kind of thrown that fantasy theme because it's the girl and her imaginary friend kind of come to life. It's really the tale of a lonely girl. There's definitely some strong connections to events in Val Luton's life. There's one particular story when we get to it that is attributed to Val Luton and his father. And I there's a big question mark on that because I'm like the timelines don't match up. Val would have been about two And I don't know how much he would have remembered at the age of two of his father. What do you think?
1: This viewing was a revelation for me. I didn't listen to any commentaries. These thoughts and comments are my own. First of all, as far as being a sequel to Cat People, and it's been a long time since I've seen Cat People, I did not notice any discrepancies. I mean, in my mind, these are the two other people that were in Cat People I didn't actually remember how Cat People ended, so I don't know if Arena died like in Cat People or if that is something they created to tie the two stories together. I thought actually from that sense it was a very good sequel to Cats People. You can have a sequel that doesn't have to be the same thematically or the same style of film. it can just pick up with characters and, and there can be plot points that happen. From one to the other or between. So from that perspective, I've got no complaints. And I did no comparing to Cat People.
3: You made a good comment there about sequels. In my mind, the best type of sequel is one that either continues the story from the original or will take the characters from the original and kind of put them in, in an entirely different situation and that should be kind of treated as like another story, maybe an entry in a film series. The Thin Man, for example, that's a film series, right? The first film would have been considered a sequel, right? But then by the time you get to three or four films, they're no longer sequels, right? It's a film series and you begin to look at the films differently. If it's just two films, the first film and then and its sequel, but then if you add a third or fourth film, well, it's a film series, and it seems like the individual films then begin to stand more on their own. I think with Curse of the Cat, people, when you see both films back-to-back, where they had to tweak a few things, it, it happened in the 1940s, right? I mean, that's when you look at the Mummy series, we've talked about this, how from one film to the next, there's a connective, or Frankenstein. Frankenstein's in the swamp in this one, and When you take the mummy, for example, and move them to a different country or a different state than they were at the end of the last film. Yeah, you're hoping that the audience just kind of goes along with it. And that's kind of what they do here, because Arena is very different in this film than she is in the first one. How so? Remind me. Well, there's some similarities, but we have to remember that in the first film, she was a very jealous woman. There was the whole idea that she was a werecat jealousy was playing a part in her aggressive nature and you clearly don't get any of that with the, with the ghost of Arena she's now a very different person argument would be that while well, somebody dies and they become a ghost are they going to be that vengeful person that they were in life as a ghost well most horror movies would tell you yes if the person was a bad person they're going to be a bad ghost but she's not in this one becomes a friend to the daughter of her former husband and his new wife, the woman that she was actually jealous of and tried killing in the first film. But they don't talk about that in this movie. It's not really explained other than Arena was the, the past wife, and they don't go into all the, the details. is very different in this film than she is in the first one. The characters of Ollie and Alice... They're essentially the same characters. There's really not any difference in the way either of them play. There's there's obviously a connection with them in the first movie. They end up together by the end of the movie. And here they're married and have a child, which the natural progression, right? Because it's obviously roughly eight years or so later, even though it's only two years after the first film. A little time has elapsed. They've started a family. It doesn't quite make sense. So you just have to accept it. And treat it almost as like a, a separate story from the first one. At least that's the way I have to approach it.
1: Yeah. So I have a question. Irina did die in Cat People at the end. Yes. Okay. I'm not arguing, but there is a thread through the film and, and particularly a specific one where the wife tells her husband they don't want their daughter to know about Irina. At that point, and we weren't very far in the movie. Wouldn't it have been interesting if Amy, the daughter, was Irina's daughter? And she had been born before Irena died. So the point of not wanting Amy to know who her true mother is, I know it doesn't work out and gets a little more explicit later. So, you know, that that's not what happened. But I kind of had that thought because then there's more of a tangible reason for her to sort of be haunted or have this curse supposedly on her. Anyway, that wasn't the movie we got
3: no way to explain that because arena definitely wasn't pregnant in the first film there was even no opportunity for her to get pregnant see that's the interesting thing is that ali and arena had an attraction in the first film but really he doesn't know arena when they get married and that's part of the problem is like once he gets to know who who she is and all of her weird idiosyncrasies and obviously the fact that there's a whole other side to her and he accepts the fact that he never really loved Arena. He truly loved Alice because Alice was the woman in, in the office. There's a scene where he's kind of looking at her picture, and you kind of think, why would he even have a picture? Yeah, I was Arena just going to ask you. Because, because he doesn't really love Arena. In the first movie, when she finally goes to try to get some psychological help and she comes back, is excited about whatever breakthrough she had. And he's like, well, I wish she had told me this yesterday because today I realized I don't love you. And I love Alice and I've always loved Alice. And Alice and I will be together. And then of course the cat nature comes forward and she's now aggressive and she's jealous. And arena clearly loved Ollie because she hadn't loved anyone else before. She'd never had friends before. That's the whole thing at the beginning of the movie on the plus side. You can sit there and say, "Well, Irene is at peace." Yeah, she's not really. A- she had this troubled life, and she died, and now she's at peace. And her befriending Amy was her way of maybe trying to rectify the pain, because she's not really pulling Amy away. And I'm going to stop you because I
1: I kind of disagree fundamentally about something. I don't think it's about her at all. What she's doing, what Irene is doing, it's all about the girl and that she came from her and the relationship with the father. So I don't really consider, I mean, the fact that it's her is important because that's the connection with the father. But other than that, I don't see her as being the same character that we're, I don't see us as continuing her story.
3: I agree. I think the movie would have worked. It would have a better place. I think if you would just let's uh, change the title, no cat people in this one, because There's nothing cat related in this movie, really, other than Arena was the cat people from the first movie. I think you could take away the fact that Arena looked like Ollie's dead wife. If you just make Arena this imaginary character and then give a little bit of background that Ollie had a first wife who had lapses of reality. It was reminding him of that past, which is why he was so concerned about Amy. That movie would have worked, but it wasn't marketable. It wasn't what they were attempting to do from a marketing perspective. There's another thing about midway through the movie when we are introduced to the daughter, Barbara Farron, the daughter of Mrs. Julia Farron. She's played by actress Elizabeth Russell who played the cat woman in the first movie. When you see her, the immediate thing was, okay, well, is she the same character from the first film? No. She's an entirely different character with no connection to the character that she played just two years earlier. This weird casting decision to cast her, and I don't know if it was intentional or just happened to be that she came along. I think this movie would be better if it didn't have the cat-people connection because it's tenuous at best.
1: Devil's Advocate. Even if you don't remember the details like I didn't, you know, Irina was bad. She was the monster. Therefore, when she appears, don't you have an underlying sense of, okay, what's her intention? What's she going to do? Is she really going to be a harm to the girl rather than be a friend? I think there's some value in that.
3: That's a good point. The initial thought, there there could have been some suspense. I'm like, ooh, that's Arena. She's bad news. Yeah,
1: and I don't know if you could duplicate that just by having the history of him being married to this woman before told throughout the rest of the story. I don't know if it would have had the same impact. I don't see it as a fantasy at all. I don't see it as horror. A ghost story, maybe, but I just see it as a psychological drama. And the psychology in this is so fascinating to me. And I feel so sorry for that little girl. Her father, I'm surprised she's not more of a mess than she is. She gets in trouble at school because she's different. And they call her in and the parents in. And the teacher even tells the father have some responsibility in what she's doing. But to tell her when she was three years old that the the tree was a magic mailbox. She's going to believe that. How can you come back years later and say, oh, but I didn't mean it really, a kid's not going to understand that. And that's fine if you do that like as a lesson, but to turn it against her and say, you can't act like this now, that's not really true, even though I told you it was. I mean, that's almost cruel. I, he redeems himself, and he's got his own psychological baggage, but I don't think he's acting like a good father, <laughs>
3: I wanted to touch on the magic mailbox tree real quick and, and say that this was supposedly based on a story that Val Lewton's father told him when he was a child. I question that because of the timeline. His father supposedly was out of the picture by the time he was two. And I don't know that if his father would have told him a story about a magic mailbox tree, that he would have remembered it at the age of two. Nonetheless. It does kind of tie into the fact that supposedly Val Luton put his sister's birthday party invites in the tree, not his own invite to the tree. And also the idea of Amy being a loner and being kind of always on the verge. There's a concern that she's going insane. She lives in this fantasy world. According to his wife, she felt this was very much who Val Lewton was in, in, in real life, that the events that he had as a child kind of kept him from being connected to the real world as an adult. It's interesting when you look at the fact that like Val Lewton, despite the fact that he was this well-known producer in Hollywood, there's very few pictures of him. There is no film footage of him and there is no audio of him. Hmm. He kept himself very detached from that part of the real world. If you watch the documentary, which is Martin Scorsese presents Val Luton, Man of the Shadows, you definitely get a sense for the sadness, I think, in, in his life. A fascinating character, but an underlying level of sadness and this movie I really feel is, is maybe much more personal for Val Luton than perhaps we give him credit for. Another reason I like this movie
1: it's a mix of oh well it was a sign of the times versus I don't know if I ever would have wanted to live in a time like this <laughs> and that is when Amy insists that this imaginary friend exists And the father says, if you insist, I'm afraid I'll have to punish you. And he marches her upstairs hand in hand and goes in her bedroom and shuts the door. The teacher happens to be there and she says, a child's first spanking is a special occasion. Now, I'm not against a good, you know, I was spanked and I just turned out incredible. (laughs) I did not realize that I should have cherished that moment as a special occasion when I first got spanked.
3: That is definitely, I think, a product of the past. There's an argument that if there was more corporal punishment, maybe kids wouldn't be as bad today. Yeah, that's a kind of odd scene. That scene doesn't necessarily age very well. We'll leave them to that. And let's go have some coffee in the kitchen. I
1: just had a a revelation, Richard. So in my notes, I wanted to talk about the Farrens. You mentioned the mother and the daughter. And that's a uh, deep subject matter there because is the older woman purposely telling her daughter that her daughter died and that she isn't her daughter to be cruel or is she really kind of losing her mind but that whole little plot device of i got to be a little spoilery to say this the daughter sort of resents the fact that amy comes over and her mother just loves her thinks she's the greatest and won't even acknowledge that she's her daughter and she tells her mother you're always She's always more cruel to her after Amy has been there. And so she says, if she comes again, I'm going to kill her. Now, that does turn out to be a plot point, sort of. And to me in this movie, that sort of was, okay, you're forcing that. That doesn't really fit. But I'm thinking of the Leopard Man now and how when they go through the potential suspects and actually even the one that ends up being responsible that's sort of the same way it's kind of like sudden and you kind of think okay they had to wrap this up in 70 minutes you know RKA1 it wrapped up but if you go back to everything we've talked about and what William Freakin said about Val Luton is going with a character and then going to a new story so here's this character and yeah it's sudden to us but we don't know her story She has probably got a story that goes back and between her and her mother and why it's that way. Just because we don't know it, it's out of the blue for us, but it may be perfectly in line with those characters and what happened to them. So that's making me give this both movies a little more credit because things don't have to be spelled out. And maybe that was part of his design
3: you're just talking about that, I'm thinking, okay, there's another connection came from Val Luton's life. Again, in this film, we have a child who is being ignored or not believed by the parents. To an extent, almost abandoned in kind of this weird way. That's Val Luton's childhood coming into play here. Kind of present in the ghost ship. The second officer aboard that ship, no one believes him. He's being ignored by everybody and he's being left in jeopardy at the hands of the praised captain of the ship. I want to circle back about
1: the sound. We were talking about the sound and how effective it is. So coincidentally, and add whatever other layer you want to this, it takes place in Sleepy Hollow. Amy, for the first time, is told the story of the Headless Horseman of Sleepy Hollow. So at the end, when it gets pretty intense and she's out on the run and she's hiding under a bridge she hears what she thinks is galloping of horses and a truck drives over the bridge and they close up on the tire. It's, I don't know, something's chains are on under something and it's hitting the ground. It sounds like a horse galloping. So that was a very effective use of sound. And that reminds me, we haven't even mentioned the Luton bus. Cat people, there's a scene where I don't think it's arena. I think it's, is walking on the foggy, dark, shadowy street, like in all these movies, and the camera's positioned in a way that you're looking at the left, but then suddenly on the right, this bus drives in, in front of her, it's a bus stop, and air brakes go off, and so there's a noise, and it's a jump scare. This became known as the Luton bus. Is it your understanding that this was the first jump scare While you're pondering that, I will say that it's a tool that he sticks with and uses and he uses increasingly more as loot and bust moments that are jump scares that genuinely work because of the misdirection of the camera and the sound.
3: I don't know. I'm trying to think just randomly uh, any other film that would have had some type of jump scare like that. And I don't know. I want to say there's got to be a film that does something, but maybe not. Maybe this is the first jump scare.
1: Leopard Man, I'm looking back at my notes. There were three. There was a train that speeds by out of nowhere. There's a tumbleweed that blows out from under a bridge. That, that scared me. And there's hardly even sound with that. Just all of a sudden, this tumbleweed blows out. Yeah. Or you think this leopard is hiding. That's a jump scare. And then there's a convertible that drives by late in the movie that makes a squealing sound or something. So all of those sort of jump scares in what has become known as the Luton bus.
3: I wanted to take a little sidestep here and offer up some thoughts from a film historian by the name of William K. Everson. He was a professor of cinema studies at New York University from 1972 to 1996. He was an avid film collector and a film historian. He is also credited to saving uh, several silent films that were scheduled to be destroyed or abandoned. He wrote 16 important film study books, including the films of Laurel and Hardy in 1967, The Art of W.C. Fields in 1967, The Detective in Film in 1972, Classics of the Horror Film in 1974, and more classics of the horror film in 1986. Classics of the Horror Film from 74 was a Bible for me. It was what introduced me to The Man Who Laughs and to so many films. I got that in the late 70s. And, of course, at that point, you know, didn't have a chance to see most of the films in that book. But I was creating my wish list from that book. I still go to that book if it, for no other reason for pure nostalgia. And William Caverson was just incredibly knowledgeable. He also hosted film screenings at the New York School for Social Research and the School of Visual Arts and the Theodore Huff Memorial Film Society. Many of his original mimeographed notes from his film screenings that he handed out to attendees are available online at a website, the New York University website. And I may share that with you, and and maybe you can include it in the notes or something. Yeah, I do. You're literally looking at mimeographed, you know, those wonderful purple on white notes. Now, the notes for The Curse of the Cat people... He didn't have any for the Leopard Man, but the notes for Curse of the Cat People are a little hard to read. But I wanted to share just some of his thoughts on the film. He stated that the Curse of the Cat People was handicapped by the double misfortune of a title that tried to pass off a fairy tale as a horror yarn and by being touted as a sequel to the original Cat People. As such, it could hardly fail to disappoint the horror market and its distribution was slight. He goes on to talk about how in explaining how a malevolent supernatural werecat became a kindly and protective spirit after death. They had to kind of distort the events of the original. The rest of the review is actually pretty well spot on. It's definitely worth checking out, going there. It's so easy to find all of its alphabetical, you just click on A and it pulls up all the movies alphabetical and you can click on it and go right to his film notes. Another fellow author and historian, Kevin Brownlow, stated in reference to William K. Everson, it would be no exaggeration to say that single handedly he transformed the attitude of American film enthusiasts towards early cinema. And Kevin Brownlow is well respected. So check out that site. I did just curious to see what his thoughts are. He did offer up, I believe, a review on Cat People and some other Val Luton films. So as you're diving into these movies, you might peruse that website and and see what uh, William K. Everson stated. A few other things I had here. This was just a random thought. Why is Irina, who is Serbian or of Serbian descent, as as was declared in the first film, why is she singing a French song? I don't know. Made for a cool moment. You mentioned the question about directors. Why is there two Mm. directors listed? Gunther von Fritsch. This is probably the film that he's most well-known for. He only has 23 credits. He ran into problems. I believe this is one of his first films, if not his first film, and it was running behind. Mm. So they bring in Robert Wise, interestingly enough, another first-time director who was able to finish the film, make it his first film. They were still, I believe, slightly over budget. They were certainly behind schedule. But... Gunther was not on track for being able to accomplish that. So they brought in someone else and Robert Wise was able to finish the production. Robert Wise, if you've been living under a rock and don't know who he is, 42 films, including another Val Luton film, The Body Snatchery, Did the Day the Earth Stood Still, Run Silent, Run Deep, West Side Story, Sound of Music, The Haunting, The Andromeda Strain. And if you thought I wasn't going (laughs) to get a Star Trek reference, here it is. Yeah, he directed Star Trek The Motion Picture in 1979, a film that I, talking about multiple viewings, I appreciate that film more and more upon each viewing. Visually, one of the most stunning Star Trek films, perhaps not the most exciting when you compare it to other films like The Khan or First Contact. But there's a lot to see in that film, and that was really due to the direction of Robert Wise. The cast, real quick, wanted to go through that. Obviously, Simone Simone reprising her role of Arena. Cat People, Curse the Cat People are the two movies that she is most well-known for. Kent Smith, who played Ollie Reed or Oliver Reed, no relation. Mm -hmm. He also was in The Spiral Staircase. He did lots of TV work, including The Outer Limits, Twilight Zone, The Alfred Hitchcock Hour. He was in The Invaders and Night Gallery. He was in the first film, The Night Stalker. He was also in a movie called Cat Creature in 73, interestingly enough, as well as his last film being Die, Sister, Die in 1978. Jane Randolph played Alice Reed, only 22 credits, most well-known for these films, as well as Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. I'm going to save Ann Carter for last here. I'll mention just real quick, Eve March played Miss Callahan. She was in The Seventh Victim. Julia Dean, she played Mrs. Julia Farron, the older lady. She made seven movies between 1915 and 1919 and then didn't come back to movies until this movie. So she had a big absence in film. She was 66 years old when she was in this movie. She went on to do Nightmare Alley. She did a total of 21 films before her death in 1952 at the age of 74. (laughs) Elizabeth Russell played Barbara Farron. We mentioned that she was also in Cat People. She was in Seventh Victim. The Corpse Vanishes, The Uninvited Weird Woman, Bedlam. So she's a very familiar face in the 1940s horror movies. I want to mention Sir Lancelot. <laughs> he played Edward. I always love him in, in the films, and, and he is in three Val Lewton films. I didn't know history behind him. So he was actually born in Trinidad. But then his family moved to to New York, and he discovered calypso music while living in New York in 1940 and became a calypso singer. Hmm. At the time, adding unique names was kind of a thing amongst calypso performers. So he was actually born with the name Lancelot, and he just added Sir before Hmm. it. And that became his calypso name and the name that he's known by in films. He's also in I Walked with a Zombie and The Ghost Ship. He sings in both of those films. He's also in To Have and Have Not. He was in the ill-fated Bela Lugosi film Zombies on Broadway and in a movie that I don't think I've seen, The Unknown Terror in 1957. Hmm. And now I want to see it because I was like, I don't recognize that name. So Ann Carter played the character of Amy Reed. She was eight years old when this film was made. She was in I Married a Witch. She was in Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. She only did 18 films. When she was the age of 16, she contracted polio. And it ended her film career. She did not die, but it did take her a long time to bounce back. And so she never returned to Hollywood after that. She lived to be 77 years old. She died in 2014. Of ovarian cancer. Oh, goodness. Uh, I believe she spent the last three decades of her life in Washington.
1: And by the way, we haven't even mentioned she, I thought, was very, very good in this and contributes to the effectiveness of it greatly.
3: I would agree wholeheartedly. Curse the Cat People. It's available on Shout Factory Blu ray, a little cheaper, $22. It does appear to have some nice extras on that Blu ray. I would recommend Curse of the Cat People. I know we're going to dive more into Val Luton, but just real quick, I think of the two films, I would still say Curse of the Cat People is my favorite of the two that we've, we've dived into more. I walk away from both of these films appreciating them a lot more than I have in previous viewings. And I'm very glad that we have dived back into specifically to these two films, because I think there's a lot more to see and to appreciate in these films than what may be on the surface. Bucking our trend of
1: having odd disagreements, we are totally in a line with this. I agree
3: with everything you said. Let's dive back in because Val Luton's career is not over yet. Uh, in the years that would follow, he would produce two non-horror films in the same year that "Cursed the Cat People came out. So he did Mademoiselle Fifi with Simone Simone. That was also directed by Robert Wise. And then a film called Youth Runs Wild. In 1945, he would be paired with Boris Karloff in a decision that he did not want to do. He he did not want to work with Boris Karloff. But ultimately, Boris Karloff, the last three films, really kind of saved Val Luton because Curse the Cat people wasn't really what the studio w- was expecting either. And this, of course, on the heels of, I think, he had started out so strong and then they were a little disappointed and kind of the diminishing returns. So bringing Boris Karloff in kind of rejuvenated Val Luton's status at RKO, and it rejuvenated Boris Karloff. This film was considered the start of a renaissance for Karloff, who greatly appreciated what Val Luton brought to the table and credited Val with elevating him away from the Universal horror films and the Frankenstein franchise. Having just played in House of Frankenstein in '44, Karloff was ready to do something different. The three films that he did with Val were certainly very different than what he was doing at Universal, and the first of those being The Body Snatcher. Many consider it one of Boris Karloff's best horror films, if not his best horror film. Directed by Robert Wise as well also featuring Bela Lugosi, the last screen pairing for Lugosi and Karloff. This was followed by a 1945 Isle of the Dead, and then finally Bedlam in 1946, both of these directed by Mark Robson, who would later direct Earthquake, which we have previously done on the show in our first It's a Disaster episode. I will real quick say that Body Snatcher, Isle of the Dead, and Bedlam. I have reviewed these three on my site in previous years, and I am resurrecting those reviews this month. As we record this, The Body Snatcher went live, and by the time this episode goes live, Isle of the Dead will be out there, and then Bedlam will be out there shortly. I will say that I love The Body Snatcher. It's an amazing film. Isle of the Dead is a film that I appreciate more every time that I see it. Bedlam... I appreciated it more this time as well. Bedlam is not quite horror, but I forget that it's got a rather horrific ending. I think all three films stand out in Boris Karloff's filmography. What are your thoughts on these three?
1: Before I just a couple little things to sprinkle in with the information you gave. During those early 40s movies, and I think I'd say up to Curse of the Cat people, RKO saw great profitability, most profitable period they'd ever had. So here's Hollywood genius. What they decide to do is they think they could be twice as profitable if they divide this team, this core team that has been making the movies that are so successful. I don't know if you dug in deeper, maybe you could align that. But I do know in my personal ranking of movies, they do go downhill after Curse of the Cat people. And in fact, my least favorite of all is Bedlam. I just love that Hollywood wisdom. We could take what's successful, dilute it, by splitting it in two, and then somehow be twice as successful. Body Snatcher, I have been missing the boat on this for years. Every time I try to watch it to see what I'm missing, that everyone loves so much about it, I just don't get it. But I don't know, I've awakened some new understanding discussing these films, so I'm not giving up. I should like that movie. And I do remember, if I recall, there's only one scene between Lugosi and Karloff, Yes. And that is a terrific scene. I'm not denying that. It's just overall, I, I just think the movie's so-so. Isle of the Dead is fine. I watched a little bit of it this year.
3: I think you see Val Luton's touch in both of those films. I, I will agree that Isle of the Dead doesn't necessarily have that Val Luton flair that some of his earlier films did. So let's wrap it up. What happened to Val
1: Luton after Bedlam?
3: After the success of, of those films, he worked as a writer, actually, we should mention. He worked as a writer on all three of those films. With The Body Snatcher and Bedlam, he wrote a film under the pseudonym Carlos Keith. And then he remained uncredited on Isle of the Dead. 1946, RKO head and Val Luton supporter Charles Comer, I believe is how it's pronounced, passes away. And with studio changes, Val Lewton is no longer the favored son. There's going to be a change of direction. And Val Lewton is actually released from his RKO contract. He suffers his first heart attack, although a mild one, in 1946. With his beginning of poor health, it's going to plague him for the rest of his life. He's now on the outs of the Hollywood system. He bounces back fairly quickly. But there's clearly he's taken a step downward, I think. He's hired by Paramount Pictures in 1946, but he only produces one film there. And that's the movie My Own True Love. And that's not until 1949. Uh, That movie stars Melvin Douglas. Later, by the following year, he was back at MGM. He produces Please Believe Me. And then he seeks out a potential new production company, a partnership with Robert Wise and Mark Robson. But it doesn't really get off the ground. The partnership comes to an end when he's essentially kicked out of the partnership. They had a disagreement. And Robert Wise and Mark Robson said, well, we'll do this without you. And Val Lewton found himself on the outs. He went to Universal Pictures and produced his last film, Apache Drums, which seems so far removed from what he was doing less than a decade earlier. He quits Universal. Columbia Studios offers him a job as an assistant producer on a new series of films. So he's clearly taken a step down. The first of the films was supposed to be My Six Convicts. However, he begins suffering from gallstone issues. He then suffers another two heart attacks. And then on March 14th, 1951, he dies at the very young age of 46. And then he's just gone and It was only in years that followed that people really began to see that there was something special with those films. Cat People would get re-released in the 1950s, but it was paired up with King Kong. Because Cat People, people will think there's a cat creature in it. Leopard Man was the same way. It was marketed as such. When you look at the poster, you're thinking you're going to get this leopard creature. Now we know a lot better that these movies are, are not sensationalized, big, giant monster flicks. They're much more there. I think at the time in the early 40s that they were recognized as such, but I think with some of the diminishing returns, and then as he kind of fell out of favor those last five years, Val Lewton's star was no longer shining. But we look back now in retrospect, and Val Lewton is definitely very well-loved and very well-respected. There's an amazing podcast series, The Secret History of Hollywood, hosted by Adam Roche, He did an 11-part, very extensive look at Val Luton. It's called Shadows. I've only listened to part of it. I mean, it's like 40 hours long, so it is a commitment. But apparently, it's so successful that it is going to be a motion picture written by Adam Roche. I don't know if it's going to be a documentary or if it's going to be like a biopic. Either way. I am absolutely on board. Well, I have a
1: question for you. First of all, you mentioned that he had a daughter. Uh, there is a Val E Luton, his son, that appears in the documentary I watched. When did he have a son?
3: I have to admit, I don't have that in my notes mm. because there just wasn't a lot of focus on his family life. It's interesting. He's on camera and he talks a lot about
1: dad and what dad liked and didn't like and what dad probably meant. So it was an, it was a personal touch. It's all career driven. It's not really personal, personal. So yeah, he had a son. I don't know if he's still alive, but he was when they made this documentary. I'll wrap up my part just by saying another thing I really liked that I got out of the documentary is that before and after Val Lewton were two types of horror films. Before was dark fairy tales that took place in their own worlds. Frankenstein, Dracula, far exotic places, some real, some imaginary, even King Kong, a remote island. But after Val Luton, horror was about what scares you in real life. I agree. That's true. And he's had an impact on horror that is just hard to really express how important it was.
3: This was an absolute joy to revisit these films. Definitely seeing these films in a whole new light. And I look forward to revisiting them again with even more knowledge now picked up during the research I think it'll be a lot of fun to revisit these films somewhere in the future
1: this has been one of the most eye-opening episodes we've done let's take one more break and come back and do some new business
4: hey I'm so glad you could make it welcome to my little podcast here Bill watches movies I'm Bill Mize I'm the host and creator And I'll be helping you today. Now, we're a podcast that's a little different from the other ones out there. We start off with a rich and aromatic blend of B-movie weirdness. Then we fold in some Hollywood history and biography. And finally, at the end, we sprinkle just a bit of old-time radio ambiance for that finishing touch. Now we think that that unique combination will bring you an audio experience that you'll want to enjoy again and again. Each month, we'll serve up a story that will entertain you and bring a smile to your face. I do hope that you'll subscribe and try an episode. They're a wee bit naughty, but won't go directly to your waistline. Now to learn even more, you can always go to our website, billwatchesmovies.com, for show notes, blog posts, resources, and just general dorkitude. Now I'm also on Twitter. Just search for Bill Watches Movies. I'm pretty easy to find, and I would absolutely love to hear from you. Thanks again for checking us out. Relax, enjoy the music, and then enjoy the show.
1: We are back with new business and we've retooled this a bit rather than strictly go through categories of home video releases, birthdays, anniversaries. We're kind of just putting it in a blender and mixing it all up. And we're just going to talk about stuff that's relevant, either things that Richard or I have run across since the last episode, or maybe a birthday or anniversary that relates to this episode or something we've done in the past. I don't know what you've got, Richard, but I've got a few things I wanted to mention and There are some birthdays and anniversaries related to Val Lewton in this episode. So first of all, Jean Brooks was born on December 23rd, 1915. She starred in Leopard Man and uh, Seventh Victim. Two of Val Lewton's movies were released in December. The Ghost Ship, December 16th, 1943, and Cat People, December 25th, 1942. In the World of Home video... Vinegar Syndrome, we talked about, was having their Black Friday sale. We didn't know what the mystery titles were going to be. And unless I'm getting these boutique labels mixed up, I believe one of the mystery titles was something near and dear to your heart. Richard, do you want to explain what that is?
3: Yes, that would be uh, Santo. I'm all about Santo, and we very rarely have gotten Santo releases officially. drawing a blank on the title. (laughs) Versus Dr. Death santo versus dr death it's a 1970s santo film is out uh this was a total surprise for me i was not expecting this to be popping up i did not get a chance to plan accordingly i have santo films actually on the way at some point by the time this goes live i hope to have them uh, i've ordered the first two santo films that are coming out from indicator over in the uk and so now this is another santo film so some nice christmas stocking stuffers i, I would suspect For Santo fans to get the first two films and then, of course, the 70s film, good prints from everything I can I've been able to read about both or all three rather being in the original Spanish language with English subtitles. Hopefully these all sell well and maybe we'll get some more Santo, some real good Santo releases Coincidentally, and Richard, fate conspires to create these
1: synchronicities. Santo versus Dr. Death was first released in Spain on December 17th, 1973. Now, I have to mention the day has come, and I've probably mentioned before how I wanted a good release of this. Martin, George Romero's Martin, finally. Now, this is overseas but Diabolic DVD is is advertising it. I'm looking at it right now. i would not seen the list of features, but they are numerous. I have seen in different posts. I think this is one of the few movies that regardless of how I can get it, <laughs> if I can play it or not, <laughs> or how much it costs, I have got to have Martin because I love that movie. As far as I know, it has not ever really had a good release. So very excited about Martin. I... Don't even know the the release date, but very excited that that's coming out. I want to remind everyone, as of this airing, you have a few days to participate in Kino Lorber's Winter Wonderland sale. Their sales are just terrific. There are movies on my list that are eight ninety nine, nine ninety nine Blu rays. Really, you should check into it if if you've got anything on your Kino.
3: How long does that sale last? Until the nineteenth. Well, that is after payday and Fu (laughs) Manchu continues to call my name out.
1: The only other thing I had for new business was one more anniversary, Dracula, Prince of Darkness. I wanted to mention that. Now, why? Oh, January 9th. We, We do go into January. I forget. 1966, Dracula, Prince of Darkness came out in the UK. Not one of my favorite in the Dracula series. In fact, my least favorite. However... Hammerama, we mentioned earlier, Alistair and Steve, their most recent episode was on Dracula, Prince of Darkness. And like all their other episodes, if you listen, it's just amazing. And when I give them their feedback, it's that as much as we've heard about Hammer and read about it, they somehow bring something new to it. It's a combination of the sense of humor, points that I never thought of. A guest, maybe. Can you imagine two women that actually liked vampire lovers? I mean, it's unexpected. Yeah. And I love that podcast. And I saw the release date of Dracula, Prince of Darkness and thought it would be not that I need one, but a good excuse to give a shout out to Hammerama. You got anything that would fall into this bucket, Richard? No, I think we've covered it. You've been talking about your blog and your posts on Val Luton this month. You doing anything else you want to share with our listeners?
3: Well, I'm going to concentrate on Val Luton in the first half of the month. And then, as we, I'll wrap all of that up with the posting of the episode. And then, you know me, it's Christmas. I've got to do something Christmas Carol related. There is a new animated film that's going to be on Netflix. I've seen the trailer. It looks horrendous. Not going to see it. Oh, goodness. I'm a Christmas Carol snob. It must be
1: if you're not going to watch it. It must
3: be. It looks like they've kind of tried to do an animated film with some aim towards kids. Scrooge has a dog. It doesn't seem like my cup of tea.
1: Where did I see this week? Somebody said they were talking. Did you tell me
3: a story about,
1: again, Hollywood wisdom? Stick a dog in it. Everyone likes a dog.
3: I didn't, but that was probably exactly why they did that. I mean, you're trying to like... Uh. I don't know, humanized Scrooge? Well, that happens in the story. You have to hate Scrooge at the beginning, and then you like him by the end. That's if the tale is done proper. Anyway, I haven't seen it. I shouldn't judge it. But it didn't entice me to want to see it. Uh, I've got enough other versions of Christmas Carol. And I'm actually going to be revisiting some silent versions of A Christmas Carol this year. Uh, Several years ago, I did a couple of articles where I focused on the early silent films. And I'm going to resurrect those in the week before Christmas, by the week of the 19th. going to repost a couple of those articles. I'm going to go back and maybe make a few tweaks to those articles. Ghost of Christmas Past. I'm going to throw out some old stuff. Always, I try to find a link to an old-time radio version of A Christmas Carol. And I think I have found one that I haven't talked about before, haven't shared with before. And it still features Lionel Barrymore. I'll probably... Go silent after Christmas, uh, off between Christmas and New Year's as I am most years, and we'll be diving into a lot of personal marathons leading up to the new year, revisiting lord of the rings and the willow series on disney and i know you're a lord of the rings fan <laughs> um the house of the dragon on hbo so going kind of fantasy related with some of those i've been dying to watch those films or those series so that'll be totally non-related to the vlog up to christmas i'll be busy and then kind of quiet and then by that point i'll be doing research and diving into what we got planned for January. What have you got coming up in in this month?
1: Going to do my Christopher Lee Christmas, just all in writing this year. I have, I don't usually post a review when we do podcasts, but I've got three or four from set one that I've written and haven't posted. I don't want to just post those and then not write about the second set for another year. How arbitrary is that? But it's just how my little mind works. You know, it's got to be a theme and a reason (laughs) and a date. So I might double up. Maybe I'll do... Box one, box two, a movie, each Monday of the month, something. Somehow I'm going to cover them. I did get to help out Steve Turek fill in for Derek on Monster Kid Radio. We talked about I Married a Witch. That led to a possible guest on Diecast Movie Podcast with Steve to talk about Flesh Feast, which was Veronica Lake's last movie. She was in I Married a Witch. I posted on our Facebook group page that Neither one of us liked that movie. That we thought we could talk fairly, or we try to mostly be positive people. Him especially. I mean, I'll go down a. a-
3: I will say I, I've got it on my to watch list on YouTube. I've saved it.
1: Yeah,
3: your curiosity has been piqued, and I'm like, I, I looked a little bit of it, and I'm like, oh, this is gonna be a this is gonna be a trip. I was like, yeah. I, I got, I have to.
1: Somehow, since I posted that, Steve has reached out and said he thinks now he does want to record about it. So we'll see. You may have that episode out there as well. And then that is it, I think.
3: I just want to say real quick, you know, this is our go home episode before Christmas. There are some fun stuff to share. What is maybe the top two things on your big Christmas wish list, movie related, perhaps, or pop media culture related that you'd put on your list? Oh, you're asking me? I'm asking you. Yeah, I'm I'm curious.
1: Martin is coming out on Blu-ray. Trying to think, I do have a wish list because we exchange names, mostly our books. There is a book called, uh, I think I mentioned it last time, something of the psychology of horror. And it's, you know, like, why are we scared? And the physical physiology of the brain, what happens when you're scared? There's a book about that that sounded very interesting to me. There were a couple of movies, but those are mostly from my wish list. I think Planet of the Vampires, I never did get that on Blu-ray, even though it was on sale for Kino Lorber. I, I'm having a tough time thinking of anything. How about you?
3: We didn't plan this. This just <laughs> kind of came to my mind just to wrap up. A couple of, of things are top of my list. I already mentioned the Eurocrypt of Christopher Lee. I probably won't get it for Christmas, but it'll probably be something I purchase early on in the new year. Once all these Christmas bills and stuff are out of the way and HOA payments and all that fun stuff. Who causes an HOA payment to be due right before Christmas? How rude. Godzilla, the Ultimate Illustrated Guide by Toho is now out. It's a hardcover book. And that absolutely looks like something that needs to be on my bookshelf. I want to give a shout out to Sam Irvin, who has just put out an amazing book. I was a teenage monster hunter. How I met Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, and more. All my 1970s bizarre fanzine interviews and the jaw-dropping dish behind them. I will give a shout-out to Mark Bailey. He put out a book called Giant Bug Cinema, A Monster Kid's Guide. This is something that's been percolating for a while. It is a a book featuring reviews on giant bug movies. It is currently uh, available from... Bear Manor Media. Somebody might want to add that on their list. That's it. Just a few things that give a shout out to those gentlemen. And uh, I know that there's a lot more out there. A lot of our friends are filmmakers or writers. So this is not a complete list. This is not intended. Nothing planned. I just had a couple things at the top of my head that I thought would be kind of fun as, as we are in the holiday season. We're not doing a full-fledged Christmas episode this year. I know we'll wrap up with holiday greetings, but I just thought that would be kind of fun to just talk about that real quick.
1: Well, at least you went with more of the people we know, whereas, again, I was put on the spot. The book is called Nightmare Fuel, by the way.
3: What are we doing in January? Well, we are finally revisiting a theme that we've done now several years ago. Hard to believe that it's been that long ago. It's a disaster part two. We are taking a look at two classic Disaster Flicks from the 1970s, one of which is probably at the top of many people's list when you think of Disaster Flicks. Earthquake is often mentioned, and The Towering Inferno from 1974 is always at the top of somebody's list. We're finally going to dive in and see that. And Meteor from 1979, a lesser entry in the Disaster Flicks. That one stars Sean Connery and Natalie Wood. That is what we've got coming up in the month of January. It's a disaster part two. You have your homework assignment. Take care of that over the holiday season. Yes, sir. That's going to be a good one. Love it.
1: Let's call the meeting to a close then. If you don't have anything else, let's remind people to reach out, give us some feedback, and to check out our video companion on our YouTube channel. We're going to go out with a song called Curse of the Cat People. It's a little bit slower, not rockabilly and Kind of everyone's now relaxed and in a good place after listening to us. So we're going to kind of ease out with this slow song by Robert Coyne from his 2022 album, The Hiss of Life. Very recent copyright owner is Meyer Records.
3: Sounds great.
1: Richard, have a very happy holiday, holidays. Everyone that's listening, thank you very much. Your continued listening is one of the best gifts We could ever receive and i truly appreciate it
3: want to wish everybody happy holidays merry christmas however you so choose to celebrate we hope that you do it and have a great time enjoying your time with family and friends we consider all of you as part of our family here at the classic horse club see you next year take care everyone